You're listening to the ESP, the European Skeptics Podcast, an independent weekly show in support of European level actions within the skeptical movement. The ESP is run by individuals representing different skeptical groups from across the continent. This is episode number 33. I'm your host, Andras Pinter, and joining me for the show are my co-hosts, Jaron Levin and Pontus Böckmann. Sziasztok! Всем привет! Hey, son, hey, son! Hey! Hey! Son! Son, that's that's what you had a lot of, right? In Croatia? Yes. Oh, <laughs> Lots of sun. Days. Lots of sun and ice cream, correct? And uh, caipirinhas and Which beer. is what? Caipirinha. Caip- you have to have yeah. a caipirinha. It's, it's, a, nice, it's a nice it's drink, a, very nice drink. It's a Brazilian drink. Uh, lime, rum, sugar, ice and goodness. Yay. Yeah. Okay. Mm-hmm. Whatever. Mm-hmm. Very good. Highly okay. recommended. I wish I had one right now. And you know what? We have it, uh, 27 degrees uh, in Sweden as well. When? So in Sweden? In, yeah. That's, so it's, uh, so the, the, the vacation never ends. It's great. Okay. But tomorrow you're back to work, right? Absolutely not. I have two weeks uh, more of vacation. <laughs> what? Honestly, Sweden, Pontus you know? never, never works. Work. Yeah, he never no, bloody works. He never works. <laughs> <laughs> okay, good. What about you, Yelena? Uh, I had a wonderful week of celebrating my birthday with all my friends. Happy, Happy birthday. birthday to you. Thank you very much, you and you and you. <laughs> Ooh, but my, my favorite my favorite Happy Birthday song is the one by... Uh... Marilyn Monroe. Nope. Stevie Wonder. Oh. Happy birthday to you. Yeah. You know that, right? That's a good one. Yeah, oh, that's yeah, a good yeah. One. I've heard it, I've heard it, yeah. Mm. It's funny how this particular one became super duper popular. Mm. Yeah. Anyone played any Pokemon Go at, at all? Oh, yes, yes, I, yes, yes. I, spent... I am not getting involved. No. My, no, son, no. my son and I was out for six hours today hunting Pokemon. It's fantastically no way. fun. It's a good thing. <laughs> Mm. Oh my god! Really Six great. hours. We, That's brilliant. Yeah, yeah. We 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 uh, traveled at least fifteen kilometers mm-hmm. because you track wow. that in the in the app as well. How many did you? How many did you find? Uh, lots. I don't know. Lots of them. Mm-hmm. And what are you gonna do with them? Are you gonna train them and then fight? Uh, yeah, yeah. We did do some fighting as well, and we got beaten like crazy so it was very embarrassing but it's still fun <laughs> you got you got beaten up by by pokemons uh, and uh, yes <laughs> very wow. much so very much so that's cool <laughs> <laughs> aren't, aren't you a bit worried about your data being being used for nefarious purposes no no i welcome the overlords or whatever you so you should say yeah did you did you see that uh article by marko kovic no i did not uh, but I do know that a lot of religious fanatics thinks this is the beginning of the end of the world and it's devils and it's demons in the apps and stuff ah, like that. Ah, but everything for them is the beginning of the end of the world. So let's not, you know. Yeah, they need, uh, the, that's a prophecy, right? Yeah. But uh, I, I wouldn't call Marko Kovic a religious person. So, um, so. <laughs> no, what did he say? What did he say? No, he was. Uh, he came out with uh, with an um, an interesting article on the skept- the Skeptical Rights website, mm-hmm. and uh, this time about the the fear that Pokemon Go collects your location data. Mm-hmm. 
and there are certain appro- uh, certain different approaches to to that problem and uh, it's uh, basically the what he says is that what you should apply is the principle of charity so you 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 basically don't have to worry about that that much and and he he even provides a mathematical um breakdown of the of the whole problem oh really it's, it's, good it's a very interesting thing it's a very interesting thing yeah i assume we will link to that in the show notes yeah we will by the way do you do you sometimes worry about that like um about cctvs and the, your location data being used for for any kind of purpose purposes no i, not, I don't i don't no. think i'm important enough to for anybody to care but uh, maybe some people with power and money and famous people they might be worried more i don't know yeah, I don't know. Yeah. Maybe maybe one should, but I don't I don't think you can avoid it. I mean, if you want to use your cell phone, then you're basically traceable because the cell yeah. phone always knows where you are and you can track it through the 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 stations and stuff. So so yeah, I don't think you can avoid it. But for, uh, last time it came to my mind this this whole series of problems with it uh, was when I I use Google uh, Maps for calculating a route there is all that uh traffic data as well and the traffic data comes from the information the the location data of the cell phone users mm. and it's it's totally automatic and it it is a very useful tool but yeah it it makes you think that um it's it's your location data being used but um my argument is always that I'm not doing anything anything bad to my knowledge. Mm. So it's I I don't think I have anything to worry about even if they know where I am. I don't have a problem sharing my location with my family either because I'm not I'm not going anywhere yeah. that that I should I should try to hide. <laughs> so, yeah. And the, the 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 same thing with CCTV. As long as mm. I'm and especially that if we have a CCTV footage of something, then as long as I'm not doing anything bad, anything that that is unlawful, then uh, then I'm it, it is there to protect me and protect my rights, right? Yeah. Yeah. So it's but, a, it's it can even be a good thing. Yeah, I, I guess it depends on what kind of government you have. I mean, if you. If you're in Hungary, maybe you don't trust the government as much as we can do it in the Swe- in Sweden. And what if Trump actually becomes the president of the United <laughs> oh, States? Yeah. What will he do with the data? Well, actually, that's a stupid example because Trump is so stupid he wouldn't know how to use it. But, you know, you never know. Well, yeah, let's not get into that. But no. uh, yeah, you're right about you're right about the differences in in terms of what governments you have. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. We'll see. We we can't go full Amish, right? And and just use uh, wooden hammers. Uh, and that wouldn't work. That's absolutely so. All right. Shall we start the show? Let's. Let's do this. Let's do this. You know what? You should start with um and on this day. What day is it going to be? Well, I I've picked 29th of July. I'm not sure. Yeah. Yeah, sure. 29. Do it. 29. Do it. Good. Yeah. Good. On 29th of July, 1962, Eduard Brockner was born, um, who was a German geographer, a meteorologist, 
glaciologist and climate scientist. Mm -hmm. He studied glaciers of the Alps and particularly the effect of the ice ages on the Earth's surface features uh, by analyzing direct and indirect observation of climatic fluctuations. In pioneering research, he discovered a 35-year Brockner climatic cycle, um, and that's a swing between damp, cold, and warm, warm dry conditions. Um, so he was the first person to initiate scientific debate on whether climate change should be interpreted as natural function of the Earth system, or whether it was influenced by man's activities such as deforestations. Mm -hmm. um, and he considered the impact of climate change on the balance of power between nations and its economic significance in uh, agricultural productivity, uh, immigration, river transportation, and the spreading of diseases. So I think he's he was a very important man in, in climate change debate um, since he kind of started it. And mm -hmm. now we know full well that actually climate change and global warming is definitely man-made. And mm -hmm. it has been proven time and time again. Mm -hmm. And yeah, that's the reason why I have decided to talk to, about him today. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Did you read about uh, the temperature records? No. Well, are that they high, this, highest? This, this last June. This was the hottest June ever recorded. Yeah. And our so, July is marching towards the same thing. Mm. Yeah. Mm. It's very worrying and actually... On one of our episodes, when we did um, a news article, I think we were talking about climate change and global warming, etc. I got down this rabbit hole of, of uncovering more and more articles and writings about it. And some scientists um, are very pessimistic about the future of the planet at this stage. So they're saying, that's it. There's no turning back. We kind of reached the point of no return and um, it's all going to end badly really soon. <laughs> I shouldn't laugh, but... <laughs> because I think the, the condition or, or the um, climate change has gone further yeah. than we think it has. Yeah. So, But it's, it's strange when you look at uh, climate change deniers, they always go through these three steps. So it's first, no, it doesn't happen. And, so, and the second step, well, okay, it does happen, but it isn't our fault. And the third step is, well, it is our fault and it is happening, but we can't do anything about it. Yeah, and normally... So no matter... Yeah. And on all three steps, their conclusion is we shouldn't do anything. That's right. And normally these kind of people end up in power. I mean, <laughs> yeah. Why isn't there anybody in power who will say, do you know what? It's true. It's happening. It's priority number one. Yeah. Let's save the planet and place where we live in and just do something. Hmm. Nobody seems to be, and I think it is becoming increasingly so. Priority it should become priority number one. Yeah, um, there there is a very interesting um, article on um, on the conversation. Do you know that website? No, um, no, I I don't. Uh, no. The conversation it's um, with a sub subtitle: academic rigor, journalistic flair, and. Um, actually, I came across the article not there, but uh, on um, skepticalscience.com which is um, an Australia-based... Um, it's it's a, a, a few researchers, um, climate scientists, who are who are running that, that website, and they republish a few articles. And this article was on, uh, on the conversation, and the title is Will the Health Dangers of Climate Change Get People to Care? 
and uh, there are a few studies uh, that suggest the the answer is maybe. <laughs> well, that's hopeful. Compared with the earlier research um, done into this, um, apparently it it might be working. That that if if you pose it as a set, as a as a health related issue, because there are so many health implications mm. of the climate change, so there is a huge amount of problems to tackle. Isn't this related to the the thing you said uh, on one of the episodes, Andras, not too long ago, is that we should sell it to the to the uh, politicians as not as how can we avoid something bad, because that's really not buying you votes. You had to turn it around to something positive. This is what I'm going to do to make life better for us. No, it's the other way around. Mm-hmm. Is it? Yeah. It's the other way around because because what you can manage is uh, is risks. Oh yeah, that's right. Sorry. Yeah, I got it confused. So yeah. When you face when you face a certain problem, saying that um yeah, we have to do it because that's the right thing to do, it's it's not gonna work. Right. So it works without skeptics sometimes because we're stupid enough to devote our time and energy to, to things that we believe in, but it's not yeah necessarily a well expressed risk that that we are trying to tackle or, or manage no I, re- I remember now it's not it's not the risk to of climate change or something it's the political risk of the politician yes yes so that's what you should focus on if you don't do this you risk this as a politician and then you get them going yeah Right. Yeah. Okay. So, right. but because because of its health implications, um, it can be made a political issue, mm. because obviously that is a problem to be to be solved by politicians when it becomes uh, a public health issue. All right. Cool. Yeah. Thanks very much. My pleasure. Okay. Let's see what kind of events there are, are there are waiting for us next week. Edinburgh, the home of the Scottish Enlightenment. The city that produced such sceptical luminaries as David Hume, James Hutton, Peter Higgs and Mary Somerville. Edinburgh, the Athens of the North, which for 300 years has been at the forefront of science, medicine and the arts. Edinburgh, home to insanely successful tourist ghost tours and haunted pubs. In August, the city hosts the world's biggest arts festival where the population seems to double and the streets are awash with wannabe comedians all vying for our attention. Who in the right mind would, in the middle of all this, try and organise 23 different free sceptical events across 23 consecutive nights? Animal sceptics, that's who. From Saturday the 6th to Sunday the 26th of August, we'll be putting on different free talk every single night. We're in the Banshee Labyrinth on Nidri Street at 750 if you're coming up to the city in August, please check out our website, edinburghskeptics.co.uk, for the full lineup. And please come along and say hi. Edinburgh Skeptics, undiluted brilliance. Alright, so on Saturday, the 30th of July, you can join the Swedish Skeptics in the Pride Parade uh, in Stockholm, together with the Swedish Humanists. So uh, the Swedish Skeptics, I will not be there, unfortunately, it's too far away from me, but I will do the same thing in Malmö one week later. But we will walk oh. with together with the Swedish Humanists in the Pride Parade, uh, waving uh, f- uh, flags of different colors and showing our our support for for the the pride uh, 
community and for the LGBT community. It's interesting. Mm-hmm. One wouldn't think that a um, skeptical organization gets involved in that. I, th- I think I, mean, I think it's quite natural because all, it's all about superstition. Oh, not superstition. It's about prejudice and and about yeah, uh, uh, you know, having opinions Some about biases, things, yeah. biases without having the facts behind it. So we are there to say, mm-hmm. look at the facts. This is not only natural. It's it's harmless. It's fine. It's it's something that we should really embrace and accept. Everybody's you know the same. We just yeah. have different flavors of of uh, things and and it's just fine don't don't let your prejudices uh, guide your opinions cool hmm? very good that'll be fun maidstone skeptics in the pub is happening in august the 1st with dr peter bloomfield and the topic of that skeptics in the pub will be how experience shapes the brain which is very uh, exciting topic i, I think because i'm fascinated by the way our brains work and that's in On the next day, um, Tuesday the, the 2nd of August, um, in Nottingham, Skeptics in the Pub, uh, Sydney Padua will talk about a uh, thing from the past, um, from the Victorian era, The Thrilling Adventures of Lovelace and Babbage, mm. is the title. Nice. And the following day, on the 8th, uh, on the and the following day, on the 3rd of August, in Germany, Leipzig, there's uh, social skeptics in the pub, as there is also in Reading in the UK. So go to those if you can. On the 3rd of August, there will be skeptics in the pub in Maidenhead uh, with Dr. Selina um, Ray. And uh, it, the talk will be about Alzheimer's research. Um, as well as this uh, Skeptics in the Pub um, talk, there will be another one at Oxford. Oxford Skeptics in the Pub with Dean Burnett and the idiot brain. <laughs> um, what your head is really up to is the topic. <laughs> and on the next day, on Thursday, the 4th of August, these side Skeptics in the Pub will have an open mic night. So if you have something in your mind that you want to share with others, just go along and grab that mic and tell them what the truth is. <laughs> and uh, also on the same day, Liverpool Skeptics in the Pub. It's a social event, so just go along and have fun with other skeptics. And I believe this is it for the next week. Finally, it's not only the UK. Um, so people from elsewhere from other countries please let us know if you have an event to talk about because we can only find so much uh with our research online um if we don't know where to look for it we don't know how to find your event so the best way to let us know is to send us a link and then we can promote it you can follow us on twitter our twitter handle is at espodcast underscore eu you can email us. Email address is info at theesp.eu. You can also go on our website, theesp.eu, and fill in the contact form. Or you can find us on Facebook and like us. Yay. Yay. And you can find us on um, Stitcher. You can find us on iTunes as well. 
And you can leave us a review, a nice review, hopefully. Mm. Um, yeah, yeah, what about the five stars? Don't forget that. Maybe. Either. So just just, that would just be nice. add it. Like, that would be nice. Yeah, it would be nice. And every kind of promotion that we get for the show, um, if you start sharing everything among your friends, um, to your buddies, just um, it's, it's very much appreciated. Uh, since the more people we can reach... The better, obviously. Hmm. Okay, thanks very much. Good. Let's see what's happening in Europe lately. On the website of the Good Thinking Society, um, I came across um, a short piece that says, BBC upholds our complaint against Steve Wright in the afternoon's Lynn McTaggart interview. So, Lynn McTaggart... um, she was interviewed on uh, BBC uh, Radio 2's uh, Steve Wright in the Afternoon, which is a good show, by the way. Um, but Steve Wright and uh, Jenny Lee Grace um, chatted to Lynn McTaggart, who's the editor of the magazine What Doctors Don't Tell You. Now, it's a very telling title, right? And uh, it's it, that magazine is highly controversial and has been condemned by leading health experts. And this is why um, the Good Thinking Society actually complained to the BBC about that. And uh, what they came up with uh, is... So they they actually admitted that uh, the interview did not make clear that the magazine is attended by a degree of controversy. So the further action um, that that is supposed to happen is that um, in the future... Um, additional research will be carried out on a, on potential interviewees. So this is very good. So this shows us something about how important m- m- making such a complaint is because there is an outreach, there is a huge outreach when p- millions of people are listening to BBC Radio 2. So when there is an interview uh, like that promoting things that are that that are shedding a, a very bad light on uh, on health healthcare professionals in general without without any rhyme or reason. Um, yeah, you have to make it clear that this is not something, not the kind of approach that should be applied in the future. So whenever you see something like that, you should make it known to the producer. Uh, of of the show and this is a good example so the good thinking society did it again yeah there was an article published recently online on science enthusiast uh, website um, about how the makers of the movie waxed um, a threatening lawsuit of a very valid criticism mm. and um, I will just like to run through it briefly but we will post some links um, and your help will be required uh, our dear listeners so basically earlier this year the founders of the uh, the founder of anti-vaccination movement Andrew Wakefield uh, premiered his documentary called Vaxed from cover up to catastrophe um, for those of you who are not familiar who Andrew Wakefield is um, I just want to quickly say that he is a British former gastroenterologist and medical researcher known for his fraudulent uh, research paper that he published in 1998 in support of the now discredited claim that there was a link between 
um, administration of, of MMR vaccine yeah. and the appearance of autism. It's been discredited many, many times um, and there is a, more research done on this subject than probably on anything ever because it's such a touchy you know, topic and kids' lives are involved. So he'd gone out and made the movie called Waxed, from cover-up to catastrophe, which of course promotes the fact that vaccines cause uh, autism. And this movie has been uh, widely criticized by um, a ver- variety of uh, people. And one of the uh, critics was Fiona Petit O'Leary. She's a founder of Autistic Rights Together um, and uh, art, Short Art who created art to empower the, uh, those diagnosed with autism and to give them possible uh, p- positive voice to curb the negative stigma uh, that often is associated with autism. So she came out as, be- as an outspoken critic of the film, uh, and rightly so. So uh, the film preys on parents of autistic children, exploiting them in shameful attempt to in- in- incite fear and controversy around the vaccines. Um, so at the moment, as far as medical practice is concerned, um, it is not uh, quite yet known what causes autism, but it has been proven now time and time again that vaccines definitely not one of the reasons. So by criticizing the movie, she then got a letter from, um, the, uh, faxed, um, producers saying that she should immediately withdraw her criticism or else or they're gonna sue her Hmm. um and there was various um holes in the whole scenario of her her being threatened because they accused her for falsely um making up some accusations which she, she didn't she just based them on facts and what actually is there out there uh, readily available for people so um basically just tried to blackmail blackmail her and uh by making her afraid of the lawsuit withdraw her accusations uh which she hasn't done um so what we would like for you to do our listeners if you can we'll link it all in the description box um Retweet for you on a tweet if you are on Twitter, um, and again the link will be provided. And also, if you can tweet the article that I've mentioned to uh, Doctor Wakefield and uh, other couple of people on Twitter, so that there is some buzz around it, and so that people are aware that this is happening. So, for for very valid claims, um, th- there are some lawsuit charges. Um, and threats it's it's not it's not gonna happen there is no lawsuit it's it's just basically bullying um that's going on that's it mm-hmm. uh this art is it based in uh ireland i think, I think so that... she's uh, she's irish isn't she yeah 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 at least the url says ie at the end so it's it's the main domain yeah so it should be yeah. all right just w- uh, one quick thing to mention. It's uh, from Retraction Watch. That um, I don't know if you've uh, ever encountered uh, a retracted article online uh, when when doing some research or doing some search for for uh, research papers. It used to be the case that, for example, in the U.S. National Library of Medicine, the the PubMed, um, when when you encountered an article like that, it was in the fine print. <laughs> that it actually got retracted 
And now they are making it much more visible, much more obvious that it, it is uh, that it, it won't be possible to ignore it because there is going to be a huge red banner saying that it's a retracting article. In Comic Sans, I hope. Oh, yeah, no, 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 but... Uh... <laughs> <laughs> I think that's mandatory. No, but but it's it's a very good move. So that's... Um, you know, it's it's a bit similar to Wikipedia articles when, when on the top of the article you see that um, this article is... Uh, um, it's not very well referenced, so you, you might want to... Um, think twice before you accept. Uh, it's it's not the it's not what the the actual wording is, but uh, that's that's the actual message. Yeah. That you want to be very careful with the with the content of that page, and this this is what is absolutely necessary for retracted articles as well, because there is a good enough reason for them to be retracted. Mm. So it should be obvious right from the beginning that this shouldn't uh, be taken very seriously. Oh yeah, mentioning things not to be taken seriously. Uh, did you hear about the, the 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 Dutch guy jailed for thirty days for insulting the king? No, I didn't. So actually, I was um, going to to recommend it to you for one of the really wrong segments. <laughs> yeah, I would have would have but, made it. So what what seems to be the case is this guy uh, posted um, a few photos online, doctored photos, uh, where he he actually montaged the the, the head of the king um, onto um, photos with terrible content, and then calling him uh, the king himself, uh, accusing him of of uh, being a murderer, a thief, and a rapist. Ooh. Now this is this is all fine. I mean. Yeah, but there is a the royal defamation law in Sweden, apparently. Uh, not Sweden, in um, in uh, <laughs> the Netherlands. Uh, ne- the Netherlands, apparently, that has been in place since 1881. And it carries sentences of up to five years jail or a fine of 20,000 euros, wow. according to the BBC. Wow. Which is just absolutely crazy. I mean... One, when this happens and something is obviously faked, that should be pointed out that it's faked, and that in and it and it should should be revealed. But jailing someone, yeah, over doctoring a photo and posting it on Facebook or or whatever it was, that's just not right. Yeah. So this <laughs> is one of those old laws that people just keep there and well people that the, you you just keep there and you forget that it's there and suddenly somebody decides to well actually yeah. this is a law we can use but ah. in the def- uh, yeah in 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 the king's defense uh king willem alexander uh the dutch uh, one of the dutch political parties uh proposed a sc- scrapping of the law yeah yeah and and the king king uh, apparently pledged to accept the outcome of of any debate on the issue so ah. it's uh uh, we'll we'll see what happens, but the the interesting thing is that between two thousand and two two thousand twelve, apparently eighteen prosecutions of the same kind were brought under the law. Oh, so it is a, it is in use. This law is actually used. Yes, it is, and half not half just of them time. resulted in convictions, actual oh convictions. Oh my god! <laughs> so this is this is a moment when you actually understand. Uh, the outrage against the privileges of a royal family. Yeah. That 
why would there be a, a royal defamation law in the first place? Mm-hmm. Uh, so, and and why I think it's um it's um a skeptical issue is it's not not that per se, but uh, it's not how you want to deal with these problems with these situations. Mm. You have to make it clear that it's a fake, yeah. and that's it. Let let the people decide. Okay, um, I think it's about time to move on to our interview. And um, the topic that brought about this interview, the short interview, uh, was uh, actually brought about by uh, Yelena on one of the true or false games that we played. And uh, when we talked about the guy who tried to insert goat testicles to man's scrotum, yeah, to cure them from impotence. Cure yeah. f- them from impotence. That's oh, that's disgusting, and it's and it's a ridiculous idea. So ridiculous that that there there was someone um, who got inspired by this this whole uh, story and uh, went out to to do some research about it and put together a movie, yeah. an animation movie that is discussing this topic. So we'd like to talk about that, that movie with uh, the producer and uh, uh, filmmaker, Penny Lane. Every other episode we normally dedicate to full-length interviews, but once in a while we stick in a shorter interview with someone who has done something interesting or just uh, raises our curiosity. And today we have with us um, a film director, Penny Lane, to discuss her new film called Nuts, which premiered in the US documentary competition at the 2016 Sundance Film Festival. Um, just briefly how uh, we came uh, about to, to hear about Penny Lane and her uh, movie Nuts was through one of our listeners, Vera from Netherlands, who after listening to one of our very recent episodes got in touch with me and she said, oh, by the way, guys, this um, true or false uh, uh, segment that you uh, discussed, the uh, I know somebody who is directing a movie that was directly related to the piece of news you were talking about. And it was about a doctor who claimed to cure all sorts of ailments uh, by transplanting goat testicles into men's testicles. And so Penny Lane is that director who directed Nuts. Penny Lane, welcome to the show. Thank you. I'm so happy to be here. Welcome. And we're so happy to have you. Yeah. But before we start, I need to get the obvious question out of the way about your name. Were your parents really big uh, Beatles fans? I mean, I guess so. I think they were just teenagers in the 70s. And it, <laughs> they had the last name Lane to work with. And so they made the most of it. Yeah, it was brilliant. <laughs> brilliant. Well, you Way could, to go. You could have been Strawberry Fields. It wouldn't have been really as good. Oh, I it think. could have been Lois Lane, actually. So oh. they, they considered that, too. <laughs> I didn't think of that. Um, so... Penny, will you please tell us a little bit about yourself, um, where sort of you come from? How did you end up being a documentary um, movie maker director? And yeah. Sure. I've been making films for uh, over 10 years. Um, I made a lot of short films. Uh, and then a few years ago in 2013, released my first feature length documentary, which was called Our Nixon about the Richard Nixon presidency. 
And then uh, Nuts, this film that we're discussing today, was my is my second feature length documentary. So, can, can you tell us a little bit about uh, this new film and uh, how how did it happen that you came to to be the director of that? Well, in twenty uh, in two thousand eight, I was in my local public library, and there's a shelf that was for librarian recommendations, and I always went to that shelf and checked it out. Uh, and there was a book called Charlatan, which is a book by a man named Pope Brock about John Brinkley, uh, who in 1917 claimed that he had cured impotence with the surgical transplantation of goat testicles into men. And I read that on the cover. I mean, who doesn't want to read that, you know? <laughs> so I brought that book home with me and I read it very quickly. It was very entertaining. It was very funny. It's a beautifully written book. And, um, you know, so I thought, oh, gosh, you know, this is one of those stories that, first of all, you can't believe you didn't already hear of it. It's so crazy and interesting. And second of all, it was surprising to me that no one had ever made a film because a film about it because his life was so colorful and so outrageous and so kind of made for the movies. But I, I kind of feel that way about a lot of things that I read. I read a lot of books and I often think, oh, this should be a film. I don't usually make that film. Of course. So the thing that really made me, that really sold me on it or really hooked me on the story was the fact that in the weeks following reading that book about John Brinkley, I would ask people, hey, have you heard of this guy, you know, in, in the 20s in America, he cured impotence with goat testicles. And no one had ever heard of him, of course. But the thing that was interesting was that people would then, almost everybody would then sort of stop and pause and ask me, well, but did it work? <laughs> and, you know, and then I, yeah, do what you did. It's you laugh because it's sort of, it's so, <laughs> seems, it seems so absurd on the surface that you can't, like, I kind of couldn't believe that people were willing to even entertain the idea that it worked. But of course I had, you know, read a book called Charlatan and, you know, on the first page of the book, it was very clear that it was a scam and that this guy was a quack. So obviously I had that background going into it. But if you started out just by saying, oh, here's the claims he made, people even a hundred years later, you know, with all the advances in our understanding of how the human body works and all these things, we're still willing to believe it. And it seemed to me even more wanted to believe it. There was something about it that they looked disappointed when I answered, no, of course it didn't work. It was a totally like a quack cure, you know? Mm -hmm. So that kind of really got me hooked on the whole thing because it just seemed like as someone who makes documentary films, but also, um, you know, I'm interested in the ways that documentary films kind of deal with both ethics and epistemology, right? So, you know, your obligation to tell the truth to your audience which inevitably comes into conflict with your desire to tell a really great story, it kind of seemed like, well, I've never seen a documentary film about a con man that really explores the parallel with the, the medium of documentary film itself. So I felt like that was exciting. And that was eight years ago. So famous last words, you know, this will be fun. <laughs> yeah. No, I think you, you, I've seen the film, of course, and I, I think you, you set it up very interestingly. It starts, now I'm spoiling the movie, I'm afraid, but, but, you know, it starts like uh, uh, the, the tale of this man as he wants to, to convey it, right? 
and then Absolutely. just eventually you find out that uh, maybe he wasn't uh, on the level. Yeah, exactly, because I felt like it would be a more interesting and valuable cinematic experience to place the viewer into the shoes of someone who could be fooled by him. Because it's a more, you know, I just feel like it, it's important that, you know, even those of us that consider ourselves very skeptical and, you know, think that we walk around employing our critical capacities all the time, nonetheless, you know, we all can get fooled. It's not that hard, really, to be fooled. Um, so there is something about the experience that I wanted to create that would allow people to not just sit back in their chairs a hundred years later and kind of laugh mockingly at the dummies who fell for this guy oh how could they believe that but actually experience to some extent the the deception what it's like to be taken in by someone like this and that hopefully that would be a valuable experience mm. Mm. yeah and it really makes you think um and i i really enjoyed the movie as well and um so do, do you are you aware of this sort of this overall skeptic movement and do you identify yourself as a skeptic and, and a, a critical thinker. I do. I very much self-identify in that way and have always been, you know, I mean, like one of the, even just as a child, um, you know, growing up watching a lot of television, the amazing Randy was, you know, my hero. I mean, you know, so I've always wanted to be the kind of person who, who not just, you know, is able to sort of, I don't know, critically evaluate claims that are made to me, but also to help other people do it. It's part of why I became a college professor as well. I also teach. So yeah, I've, I've always identified that way. Absolutely. Excellent. We actually had um, the amazing Randy on our show once, and it was the most unbelievable experience. And he was so generous with his time. And you're right, he, and he completely inspires um, uh, everyone around him who, to, you know, go out there and, and search the the truth and um the thing is about someone like john brinkley the subject of my film is that as you know he didn't invent the quack playbook and it's not like when he died you know there were no more quacks he was just doing the same thing that all quacks do and if you watch the whole film i hope that there's you know even though it's just mostly a lot of fun to watch it and you don't necessarily even think about this when you're watching it you do get a very good sense of kind of how to spot these people in the wild, you know, like what kinds of claims does the quack doctor make that all quack doctors make? And so you can start yeah. being yeah. on the lookout for those kinds of claims and those kinds of testimonials and those kinds of techniques. And especially because it's a story, right? It's a documentary film. So it's a story, especially um, the kind of story they spin, which is always kind of predicated by this conspiracy theory kind of view of the world, right? Where like, they don't want you to know about this cure I have. And, you know, I'm just the, the, the innovator, renegade, maverick doctor and don't trust big pharma and all this stuff, you know? Yeah, yeah. And very cleverly in your movie, you also kind of, I don't want to spoil too much, but but you, you do draw this, not you, sorry, the character uh, draws this parallel between his claim and, oh, but do you remember when the doctors ne you never used to wash their hands and now, do you know, that that parallel was very, very cleverly done. It's, it's the Ignaz Semmelweis story, which, you know, I have never come across a quack doctor who hasn't talked extensively about 
the Ignaz Semmelweis case. You know, it's like the perfect story for them. <laughs> yeah. Or they talk about, you know, they talk about who, like Galileo, you know, or things yeah. like that. It's what hit me was that it's very much this happened almost a hundred years ago or, or 80 90 years ago and it's the same as we see now it's exactly the same kind of uh, entrepreneur that goes out he has no scruples and he he, he can he, he take advantage of people who, who are desperate for one reason or another and and sell them just quackery have have you heard about uh, stanislav bersinski Oh yeah, no, I've wait, I've wasted a lot of time fighting with Brzezinski people on Twitter. Um, you know, I definitely spent a lot of time. Actually, I watched the very terrible so-called documentary about him mm. as, in some ways, a model for my film. You know, I was like, okay, oh right, you have to have this scene where <laughs> this conspiracy theory is brought up. You know, uh, yeah, no, I, I, there's a lot of parallels, even down to the fact that in America, at least. Texas is where you go if you're a quack. You know, it's still the place. There's a lot of parallels there. Now, it seems to me that Basinski and and Brinkley, are they would uh, get along quite well with each other. I I totally agree with you. And I think that, again, just because of the kind of filmmaker that I am and my personal interests, I just, I think I couldn't even make a film exposing someone like Brzezinski because it would make me so angry. Yeah. Um, There's something about being able to approach the subject of quackery with the kind of historical distance of a hundred years that lets me have fun and lets the audience have fun and doesn't necessarily challenge you. The the thing that made Brinkley such a great movie character, I think, and particularly a documentary movie character was his absolute genius and command of using mass media. He was truly, truly brilliant at this. You know, essentially invented you know junk mail and the infomercial and, the <laughs> yeah. and all this stuff you know and he was very early to understand the power of radio and everything else and so he because of that he becomes a good documentary subject because i'm able to to use all of these archival media artifacts that he left behind and you know i'm able to use them in a way that it seems like i don't know like a ken burns filmmaker is using them it's like mm-hmm. here's this Here's this evidence that this thing happened or this thing mm-hmm. works. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, only later do you realize that all of those archival documents are produced by Brinkley's mm-hmm. PR machine and it's all basically crap. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, the, the movie actually won an award at the um, Sundance Fil- F- Festival. Yes, correct. It was a special jury award for editing, which I think is well-deserved. It's it's a really well-made documentary and very, very entertaining and uh, very educational and just uh, great all around. Thank you. No, I think it was an appropriate award, I think, as well, because it it is an interesting film. Now I'm not a connoisseur of films, etc., but I I could re- I, I could see that it was very cleverly uh, directed and edited. It, it, it built up the the at first half of the film almost. I, I was thinking, is this done from a skeptical angle at all, or is, does the filmmaker believe in this? Because it was really very convincing at, in the start. I'm glad to hear that because that was definitely the intention. <laughs> oh, I wanted to ask you as well. There was a lot of interesting archive footage uh, in the film. 
how, how did you come across that? It was, must have been really hard to find. Yeah, it's definitely hard to find, but it is part of what I do as a filmmaker. I mostly work in historical stories, and so I do a lot of archival research as part of my process, you know. But it also goes to show that Brinkley himself was very into these new technologies, radio, film, etc., and he used it as propaganda or as a sales uh, tool. Yeah, absolutely. And so so uh, what other projects do you have now after this film has been um, finished? What's the next project? Well, I'm working on a lot of projects, um, but I can't really talk about them yet. There's a couple of short films that are sort of follow-ups to this film in a way. They're, they're both about... Um, you know, to some extent, quackery and other kind of historical American con men. And there's a couple of features uh, that I'm working on that are really pretty different, but still have to do with the idea of what we can what we can really learn about the world through watching a documentary film and what is too much to ask of that form. So after having done that movie and like you said yourself you're definitely skeptic and a critical thinker and sort of having that experience and um talking to people in your opinion why do you think people are so desperate to believe all these stories i think there's two different things i think the first reason is that someone like brinkley was a really good storyteller and i think a lot about the role of narrative in constructing human knowledge and our understandings of the world and i really firmly believe that we understand the world through stories um, all the facts and information and data in the world is useless if it can't be embedded into a story that we understand and that we believe in some sense. And so when you have someone who's a really good storyteller, they have an instinct about, you know, what it is that the audience wants to hear next. Where am I going to, you know, insert the, I can give you a really good example. The fact that Brinkley's sort of story, he's just a country doctor minding his own business and in walks this farmer from the local community who has impotence and asks for help. And then he says, I can't help you. Sorry, we didn't learn anything in medical school that would help that. And then the farmer suggests, why don't you just try to give me some goat testicles? Maybe that'll work. So this is a much better story than Brinkley just sitting around trying to think of his next invention. The story, the way he tells it, is classic. It's the call to adventure. That's what you call that in, like, story structure. You know, the, the hero is reluctantly called to the journey. It's just a better story, and he understood those things so much. So the first thing is about stories. The second thing is that we would rather live in a world where, like, kooky, crazy, magical things are true because it's a more interesting world. You know, it's why we click on the article that says 10 weird tricks to trim belly fat, you know, and we don't click on the article that says if you exercise and eat less, you'll probably <laughs> It's just more fun, you know, it's like why we rather believe in angels and mermaids and, you know, elves. It's just a more interesting world with all this kind of kooky, magical stuff. And, oh, there's also, there's an, actually, there's one more thing. The third thing is really about the fact that people who are critical, critical thinkers, do have reason to be skeptical of the government of pharmaceutical company, you know, like there are actual reasons to, mm. to 
to under to be skeptical of what we might call mainstream medicine. So these people prey on that, and they give you kind of a quick answer, right? Well, don't trust your doctor, but you can trust me instead. So there's kind of like a a, a little bit of paranoia that I think many people get into when they start exercising their critical capacities about how the world really works. And if they, you know, don't want to feel afraid all the time, they just look for someone else to believe. Yeah, and I think maybe um, the science communicators will have to learn a better way to tell the stories to the to the public. And there are actually more and more very good science communicators out there who, who do know how to do that and hopefully that will continue the uh, uh, amount of people who can do that continue to grow and um and maybe science and critical thinking and skepticism can be made exciting and and fun yeah i totally agree with you so where can people see this film when can people see this film How, how can they find it uh how can they follow you your work So the easiest way to find me is on Facebook. The film has a Facebook page. It's called Nuts the Film. The website is nutsthefilm.com. Both of those places are good places to start. Um, Depending on where people are located in your audience, uh, the film will be released. It's in theaters now in the United States. It's going to be released digitally on iTunes and all those kinds of things in most places in Europe uh, starting September 6th. Excellent. And uh, we will certainly uh, post a link to the the film um, in our show notes later as well. Thank you so much for your time. Uh, It's been fun talking to you Um, and all the best in your future endeavors. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you. Bye bye. Yalama. Yes, Andres. Do you have a nice logical fallacy for us today? I do indeed. And it's a very uh, fitting fallacy for today's theme about goats. Oh, wow. And it's called, <laughs> it's called scapegoating. <laughs> Unfairly. <laughs> Poor goats. They got it all today. Mm. Uh, mm. Anyways, um, it's unfairly blaming an unpopular person or group of people for a problem or a person or group that is an easy target for such blame. So... You know, the the logical form would be nobody likes or cares about X, therefore X is to blame for Y. It's very regularly occurring all around us, used by politicians a lot. You know what I've noticed? A lot of logical fallacies are used by a lot of politicians. Mm, Yeah, I think (laughs) they take a special course. Yeah, Mm -hmm. Um, how to commit logical fallacies. mm. Yeah, I, I think there is a course. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, <laughs> uh, like, I've I've got an example here. The reason New Orleans uh, was hit so hard with the hurricane was because of all the immoral people who live there. And I'm sure we all heard a bit about it when the news broke out and people were blaming various groups, you know, sinners who live in that place. Yeah. And this was an actual argument seen in the months that follow Hurricane Katrina, ignoring the validity of the claims being made. The arguer is blaming a natural disaster on a group of people, which is completely and utterly wrong. Mm. You know, I have a good example. Go on. Uh, that involves the um, the the refugees flooding into yes, that's uh, another Europe. another big one. Yeah, yeah, and uh, especially the the situation when um, Hungary Hungary should have uh, stopped them right at the at the borders of the country. 
the southern borders. And Shirev uh, started building up refugee camps and registering everyone one by one. Uh, they We could have uh, asked for some help as well. Uh, we knew in advance that it would be happening. Um, and yet, nothing happened. And uh, the guy who's um, who happens to be our prime minister, um, he started blaming everyone else. He started blaming the EU... EU's approach to refugees and the EU's approach to immigration, which are two separate issues. And, um, yeah, instead of actually dealing with the problem, they started to find a scapegoat. And a lot of people in the country actually ate it all up mm. and fell for the, for the argument. Yeah, so this is this is how much a politician can exploit a logical fallacy. Indeed. Yeah. Thank you, Yanon. By the way, logical fallacies. On Escapticos.es, you will find a few logical fallacies uh, explained in a graphical way. So these are like uh, small comics. Mm-hmm that they put together and uh, the, the, the there is a website with a collection of these logical fallacies uh, put into a, um, a graphical format so it might be interesting to to try and uh, and use it in different other languages as well because of course they are all in Spanish but uh, I'm pretty sure if you contact them um, with uh, proper properly referencing the original source um, it could be used, and it, it could be very widely used. Um, with Google Translate, you can you can translate that. Um, so if if you want to know what they're all about, you can uh, use a Google Translate or something, and find out if they're if they're good. I find them very good, so mm-hmm. um, I do recommend everyone to to check it out. And there are lots of different logical fallacies explained that way. So it's a cool thing. Would be interesting to see it. Um, in different other languages as well. All right. So, shall we move on to something really, really wrong? Yes, we should. So we briefly talked about exorcism in Europe a few episodes ago. So I thought it would be very interesting to look into this into some more detail. Um, the question is, is it common or not within Europe today? So, so I started to look into this. And exorcism exists in the Catholic faith, but not really in the Protestantism, uh, since Luther uh, more or less got rid of the exorcism rituals when he translated and made his rules. Uh, it's also found in Islam, where it's known as Rukya, uh, and uh, it seems to me like some f- some form of demonic possession and how to get rid of it is is present in most uh, religions. Mm-hmm. So I wanted to look into this in in the countries per country in Europe. I didn't look into all countries, but some of them. So let let's start with Germany. We talked about the Annalisa Michel case uh, a couple of episodes ago, and there was also another, and this was in the seventies. But then there was a, a, a case also last year uh, uh, of, a, of a woman who was beaten to death by her family in Germany. But it turns out this is by a family who just arrived here from South Korea. So maybe it's not 
doesn't count really as European. Uh, I had to look into South Korea, what, what kind of religions are prominent there. And it seems to me that it, it's mostly, it's, it's a mixture. There is Korean shamanism, there is Buddhism and Christianity. Those are the three big ones. And actually, exorcism exists in all of those three. Even including Buddhism, which was a surprise to me because Buddhism, to me, I, I thought of Buddhism as a, as a rather benign and, and friendly and nice religion. Um, but it, it, it exists, but it doesn't seem to be very prominent in Germany, if you put it this way. So then I looked into France and I found that it's also rare in France, but it happens. And there was one estimate that I found that said that was that there exists about 120 exorcists in France. So they probably have a job. They probably do something once in a while. So it happens. If we look into Austria, it's not, it doesn't seem to be a big thing. Apparently, exorcism was outlawed in Austria in 1758. And that probably has something to do with that it's uh, not very prominent there. But it also indicates that it used to be a problem. If you have to outlaw something, then, then it has probably has happened before. Then I thought, okay, maybe how about the Nordic countries? We, we, we have such a reputation of being very sep secular and, and so on. Mm -hmm. so. so I looked into Norway as an, as an instance, and I found that the Catholic Church in Norway has three official exorcists. And one of them is the head of uh, head physician of a Norwegian hospital. Now, do you think that that's a good job to combine, being an exorcist and head of a, of a hospital? Absolutely. <laughs> okay, fine. That's good. All good then. Because you can you can deal with both problems at the same time. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you can so... apply some medicine, and you can apply the approach that you just get rid of the the the, the bad the bad spirits That's yeah exactly cool. and, th and then you don't have to spend any of those e expensive medicine right exactly yeah cognitive dissonance is a wonderful uh, thing, fantastically yeah. like, fantastic how you can do that <laughs> so it doesn't seem to be too prominent though uh there is a norwegian archbishop of course catholic uh and he gives a green light to exorcism about twice a year so it doesn't happen every day but it does happen mm -hmm. then i f just randomly looked into the netherlands and interestingly, uh, exorcism in the Netherlands apparently is just a rock band. Oh. So, so, so that's good news. <laughs> I think that's oh, very good for go Netherlands. I think that's uh, that's fine. Yeah, although although they they jail people for uh, insulting the king. So <laughs> yes, yes, yes. <laughs> right. I don't think you can blame the rock band for that. Nope, nope, definitely not. No, right. <laughs> so is, is that the story then of Europe, that it's not very prominent? Actually, no, that's not, not really the case. So what we have to do is we have to look at the Catholic Church. And it seems like it's had a revival. Exorcism has had a revival uh, lately or in the last decades. In 2004, Pope John Paul II decided that all Catholic diocese, and a diocese is a local congregation, mm -hmm. uh, they should appoint an exorcist. So this is a papal instruction. A what? A papal instruction. So you, you have to, to appoint an exorcist uh, in every diocese. That's Sorry. just silly. 
That's mm. just silly. That's just silly. Uh, and he also personally, allegedly, performed at least three exorcisms himself. So, so he was... And John Paul was, you know, he was rumored to be a fairly good guy, but he actually did the, do this himself. There is a key person in the Vatican that we need to look at, and that's uh, Father Gabriele Amorth, who was uh, born in 1925. So he's, he's still living. He's 91 years old. And he is the official exorcist for the Diocese of Rome. He claims to have performed a lot of exorcisms. Do you want to care to guess how many he, he, he says he has done? Uh, 152. 152? Uh, it's a little bit higher than that. I can. 220. Mm. The right answer is 160,000. What? Huh? Yeah. He said that in 2000... He was busy. He's a busy guy. <laughs> he said that in 2013. Wait a minute. Then, then he... He does um, bulk exorcisms as well. <laughs> I don't know. I I don't know how it works because I haven't. You buy you buy one, you get one free. <laughs> what, what <do> you know? <laughs> it could be. It could be that he he counts. You know, he has also said that each person can be possessed by one, more than one demon. So demon. So if if you know if you have a thousand demons in you and you you say. You know, Ave Maria once. I think maybe that counts as a thousand. I don't know, but he's been very busy, apparently. He has also, uh, this Amorth guy, uh, published two books. One is called An Exorcist Tells His Story. And the follow-up is called An Exorcist, More Stories. <laughs> For some reason, I cannot help thinking of Harry Potter. And I think the book of Fantastic Facts, Fantastic Beasts and Where to Find Them. It's sort of that kind of titles of the books. <laughs> um, he also uh, was one of the six organizers that founded the International Association of Exorcists in 1990. So to be an official exorcist, you have to be registered there and you have to be appointed by a bishop or the pope. And currently you have about 300 exorcists uh, registered in that organization. So this is serious business. They take it very seriously. Uh, really interesting. So, so that made me wonder, how about the new Pope, Pope Francis? He, everybody says he's such a good guy. What, what, what's his stand on this? Well, he has repeatedly said that the current generation has been deceived into thinking that the, the devil is a myth. So he's he's def definitely on that side of the fence. Of course, he's a pope. Uh, but he has done this so much that there is actually talk about a Pope Francis effect, which is leading to worldwide increase of exorcism. Did you know mm -hmm. that? No. 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 So if we go back and look at this country by country, of course, the Pope Francis effect has had a big uh, impact in Italy. Uh, and uh, some of the examples I found is that the city of Milan, or Milano, has recently increased the number of exorcists uh, uh, from 5 to 12, and the, the Diocese of Rome has doubled its team uh, to 10 exorcists. So it actually seems to be on the rise within the Catholic uh, Church. Well, maybe there is a time to create... Um... 
Oh, what was this movie about exorcism? <laughs> the Exorcist? <laughs> the Exorcist, the yeah. Exorcist. Yeah, maybe maybe it's time for Exorcist 2. Yeah, could be. Could be very much. But this is not fiction. This is uh, for real. They take it very seriously. So then I looked into some other countries. In Czech Republic, there was a much circulated video in 2014 uh, uh, that hit online news all over the place. It was filmed through a keyhole into a church and it shows a woman violently screaming while being under some sort of exorcism treatment. Um, and then I got to look into Poland because I'd heard about somehow I'd heard that Poland is big on exorcism. And it seems to be so because since 2012, there is a monthly printed magazine called The Monthly Exorcist. Or... <laughs> Do you believe that? It's it's like the Misesnik Exorcista. Mm. <laughs> you, you know what? Uh, it's it's such a material for co- stand-up comedians. I'm telling you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's 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 Ex- exorcism monthly. Misist. So let me say exorcism. that again. Misesnik Exorcista. Is it a peer peer-reviewed journal? <laughs> it's not peer-reviewed. I, I, <laughs> I well, I don't know if other priests have yeah. have reviewed it. I don't know. Uh, the original circulation was uh, 15,000 uh, copies. And it's still apparently alive and well. They have a very nice website. Uh, Poland also is the base of a site called exorcismus.org, which has tips and advice in English, German, French, Russian, Spanish, and of course Polish, where you can go and and find tips and tricks how do you find a good exorcist what how how can i know if i'm possessed things like that so it seems to be how can you know if you possessed uh, yeah i don't know or, or like how that. can you know how your if your wife is possessed i think it's very often the case <laughs> there's actually like yeah well like yeah nine husbands you have to you have to do do some thorough research yeah yeah exactly i i think actually there is uh, i can't remember exactly the number now but it's something like over 90% of every person who is treated for being possessed is a female. So it's only almost only women who get possessed. I wonder why that is. So uh, it seems to be big also in the Eastern European countries. Yay! Yay! Yeah, so then I started, okay, what about the, the looking more into... I, I talked about Norway a little bit. So how about Denmark? That couldn't be really... It's not a Catholic country, shouldn't be uh, very prominent. Uh, but in Denmark, I found an example that shows that it's actually more uh, common than you think. There is a Catholic priest uh, there uh, called Lars Messerschmidt, believe it or not. Uh, he actually agreed to come forward and be interviewed by a reporter earlier this year. And he perfor- he says he performs about three exorcisms per week. And I want to go through, he, he described one of the exorcisms, uh, and I want to quote it here because it tells a little bit of how this can happen. So this is a quote. The possessed person is a woman who has had severe stomach pains for many years. The exorcist asks her if she has played with any occult objects, and she replies, no, I haven't. But suddenly, from from nowhere, she happens to recall a glass of lemonade that she was given uh, by her uncle when she was about 17. And the exorcist exclaims, that's it, the lemonade was bewitched. 
He kneels and he prays to Jesus. And after that, he exclaims, Jesus, liberate her now. She gets up and she runs to the toilet and she vomits violently for 20 minutes. And up with her vomit comes very strange things like blue balls, whatever that is, and metal objects. And these are objects that the woman says she has never eaten. That, the, and that's the end of the, the quote. So, so he takes this as a proof that he has now yeah. uh, exercised this woman. Well, how does this sound to you? Interesting. There's so many holes, I don't even know where to start. Yeah, start somewhere. <laughs> yeah. Mm. yeah. No, no, it's, it's, I don't want to go into it, but like, you know, he just like grabbed the first thing. Oh, yeah. So that thing that you yeah, did, yeah. you know. Lemonade. Lemonade. Uh, lemonade. That's uh, it. So it's bizarre. It's bizarre. But if you think about this, I mean, she had uh, stomach pains, right? There, There is, and I cannot, of course, I'm not a doctor and I haven't met the woman, so I cannot do, a, you know, proper diagnosis. But I know that there is a, a disorder called pica which means that you have a compulsion to eat very strange things. Especially if you eat metal, it's called metallophagia. So there is this disorder. And if she starts to vomit up metal objects after being exercised, maybe, maybe, just maybe, she should see somebody who, who, who has medical qualifications, right? Yeah. Yeah. Like the Pope. <laughs> like the Pope. <laughs> like the Pope. <laughs> so I think... It's it's extremely dangerous because the the question of being possessed is very very much linked to, and could be confused with having a psychological disorder. So it is really really dangerous that Absolutely. these things are happening. <laughs> so my conclusion is that exorcism in Europe is much more common than you think. I think it's kept secret and under the radar because this is not something that people really want to talk about. It may seem like a minor oddity in, in, in things, but should be taken seriously because the, the, the cases that we hear about are the ones that end with death or, or severe beatings and physical abuse. But all the other things... You know, this lady who is vomiting for 20 minutes on the, on the, you know, in the toilet, we don't read about this in the papers. So it is a serious business. I think really uh, we should mm. take it more seriously. Cool. Cool. Agreed. So that's it. So it's not really dead in, in Europe. It happens. So I want to award this week's prize for being really wrong to all exorcists out there uh, that most likely do a lot of harm to vulnerable people due to stupid superstitions. Thank you very much, Pontus. Thank you. Well, nice things happening around. And But what's surprising in this is uh, that one would, would, would not even think about exorcism as, as a serious issue, as, as something with serious implications. Mm. Yeah, it turns out to be. So it was very eye-opening. Mm. Now... Indeed, especially with this guy and his 100,000 exorcisms. Yeah. No, that that must be that must be something that, that he did an exorcism for a, a room full of people, like a thousand people at once. I don't know. Otherwise, otherwise, how how could he be he, he do that? Yeah. Or, no he, or he's no cooking the way. books, right? You're, you're a finance person, Jelena. You know what oh, cooking the books yeah, is. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Could I be. know all about that yeah well you know what guys um i think we should be finalizing the show mm -hmm.
Yelena, do you have a nice quote for us? I do. Today's quote comes from Jamal Khalil. He's a British theoretical physicist, author and broadcaster. And he said, For me, I think the greatest achievement of science is to allow humanity to realize that our world is comprehensible. Through science, rational thinking, we can understand how the universe works. Yay. We can yeah, we can understand this if we give it a lot of thought and if we continue to do the research. <laughs> yeah. Thank you very much. I think this is about time to close close down the show. So I'd like to thank both of you for joining me today. And thank you, Andres. Thank you. And Pontus. Let's do this again next week. Let's do that. Until then, take care. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye-bye. This has been your ESP experience. The show is produced and recorded by the ESP.eu. Join us again next time, but until then, please send your feedback, comments or death threats to info at the ESP.eu. We would also love to hear your ideas and suggestions regarding future episodes, as well as news from your country of residence that might interest others across the continent. If you have a local event or organization to promote, please don't hesitate to let us know as we are more than happy to help. All music in the program was written and performed by Keisha J. Gray and George Rob and is used with their permission. Please check out our webpage at www.theesp.eu, follow us on Twitter at espodcast underscore eu and like us on Facebook. I don't know how you can believe And it's your turn, Yalala. I I didn't think it is. Somebody usually tells us what the Twitter handle is and things like that. <laughs> oh yes, oh, oh for crying out. Why do I never know? Um so you can find us. Always comes as a surprise. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> It's your job. Surprise, surprise. I know. I'm sorry. I actually, <laughs> deep down inside, I don't feel like it's my job. That's why. Actually, you said it wrong. You said our hmm? email address is info at esp.eu. It's at the esp.eu. Ah, bollocks. Yep. Bollocks That's is also again. wrong. Bollocks is also wrong. Bollocks.com. It's the bollocks. <laughs> the bollocks, yeah. <laughs> Fucking hell. Okay. Oh, for crying out. What should I do? What do should it I do? From the start top. again, please. Start again, please. Yeah. On the Good Thinking Society's on the website of the Good... Oh, fuck. <laughs>